This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. I said something the other day. I don't remember what it was. I said something like old. Oh, because I couldn't see something. Like I was trying to read something and I was like, can you read that to me? And he just looked at me. He was like, my hip hurts and I can't find my cheaters. (laughs) What? <laughs> I can't find my cheaters. <laughs> oh no, that's our life right now. My head is hurting so bad. I literally have heartburn from a, a happy hour cocktail. Like this is a mess. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Gap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. I do have some housekeeping items to tend to today. <gasps> Oh, you know, I love to keep the house. Oh, yes. We're keeping the house because next week is Thanksgiving. The week, like next week after this drops is Thanksgiving. And we're not going to have an episode that week. We're going to take it off to spend some time with our families and just have a week to breathe and get caught up on everything. But if you need an extra episode next week, you can always subscribe to our Patreon. We just dropped a new bonus episode. La a couple weeks ago <laughs> now if we mm-hmm. when we dropped this and that was the true story behind the movie Three Billboards Outside Ebbing Missouri so check that out if you are missing us next week we've come so far because Thanksgiving time last year I did my authentic turkey sounds on the mic <laughs> you might recall God. And now I'm getting to take the week off. And now you're going to take so. the week off. And we've graduated from authentic turkey sounds to your eagle. Uh, yeah. <gasps> <laughs> so. <laughs> there, I couldn't resist. There it is. There it is. I couldn't resist. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Because I may not come back after this. She's lying. Hiatus. She's coming back. I got it in blood. <laughs> you think that, but I will be spending the week with. Linda from Laporte. Linda in Louisville, oh, everybody. Yeah. Linda's Linda coming Louisville. to visit. She's coming <laughs> to Louisville. <laughs> Louise in Louisville. Oh, my God. Okay. Speaking of, this case that we're doing today takes place outside Louisville. <gasps> I know I'm not saying that right. 
but I know I'm saying it better than the episode of like, I don't know, Cold Case Files, one of these episodes I watched on it, because they definitely pronounced it Louisville. So. <laughs> oh, you got to say it like a big thing of bubblegum. Oh, oh, oh. I would be too intimidated to live there. Like I would never say the name. Yeah. <laughs> People just call it the Ville. I'm like, what? The Ville. Uh, yeah, That's I weird. could get down with that. Probably because Louisville is too hard to get right. Louisville. Louisville. This is a hometown case for me, or not hometown, but yeah, your your new hometown. Uh, it's close <gasps> by. But before we get into the case, real quick, real quick, we have an an update on our Patreon. <gasps> Finally, Patreon has given us the option for annual payments. So if you would like to pay annually, you'll get two months hey. free if you pay for the year up front. So you have that option now. Even if you're already a patron. You can adjust your membership to pay annually if you would like to do that. And regardless if you pay annually or you pay monthly, you get at the $5, $5 a month, you get a bonus episode every single week and a shout out on the podcast. For $7, an extra two bucks, you get two to three mini creeps every week. We just, we're going to drop one next week. That's a video mini creep. Of us oh, sharing our favorite products, a little gift buying guide for you. Sorry in advance. Apologies. It's all, great. Always. And at the $10 level, you get all of that plus 20% off merch. And we would so appreciate it if you would check it out and subscribe. Yeah. You guys are not going to want to miss Santa's hashtag not sponsored list. So <laughs> – Hashtag not sponsored by anybody. Except us. Except for us. (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. All right. Big thanks. Big, big thanks to Tandy for requesting this case. She sent me a DM on Instagram. Tandy! And she sent it to me like over the summer and she sent me several like really that sound really interesting and I had been kind of putting them on the back burner and I finally got around to looking into it and I was like, Yes, Tandy. This is true crime creepers. This is the cases we we like to tell. The stories we like to Tandy, tell. Tandy, are you from the bluegrass also? Tell me. I don't think she requested it because she was a local because she requested several cases. I think she just 
Everybody, this is the thing. When people request cases, this is the running gag of everybody that's requesting a case. They want to hear your take on it. They want to hear me tell you the story. They want to know what you think. (laughs) (laughs) Why? I feel like it's always the same. (laughs) I'm fed up with everyone. I want to blame everybody. Yeah. It doesn't get more like standard issue than that. Man, this one is a wild one too. I'm kind of interested to hear your thoughts on this one actually. Oh, I'm sure they are going to be very original and (laughs) buttoned up tight. I I can hardly wait. All right. Today, I'm telling you about the murder of Jessica Dishon. (gasps) Is this from Bardstown? This is not Bardstown. Still learning my way around. around. (laughs) I'm still learning my way around here. All right. It's September 10th, 1999. All right. Serena Williams was busy winning the Grand Slam at the U.S. Open for the first time. Britney Spears, Mm -hmm. the night before, she had just performed Baby One More Time at the VMAs. Everyone was running around in their flare jeans, afraid of Y2K. I literally (laughs) remember the next morning I'd stay the night at my grandma's. And I woke up and I ran home down the street. To see if, like, everything was okay. (laughs) Like, in my whale t-shirt from Cancun, Mexico, with my hair ribbon and my braces, I went busting into my house to make sure everything was okay. So part of me wonders, like, were we overreacting, like, majorly? Or were there really people behind the scenes, like, doing the hard work and making sure that everything was okay when it switched to the year (laughs) 2000? And the the only reason I even wonder that is because in office space, like his whole job is to recode stuff so that it was ready for the Y2K switchover. So I was like, is that is that real? Were there really people taking care of it? And it just went so smoothly that we all thought we were stupid for freaking out. (laughs) Or were we just stupid for freaking out about it? (laughs) Yeah. They're like yelling over their cube walls. You got it over there, Dwayne. Yeah. I'm good, Ronald. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, what, you know? Yes. And 17-year-old Jessica Dishon was a senior at Bullet Central High School in Shepherdsville, (gasps) Kentucky, which is a rural community about 20 miles south of Louisville. Shepherdsville. Okay. One, Bullet County is like the county right over for me. Okay. And I'm 99.9% sure that Shepherdsville is where I drive to get my Bojangles, which I frequently need. Really? All right. Yeah, Bojangles. If if you guys don't know about Bojangles. You go 20 miles away to have some Bojangles? You know that it's 20 miles away? I know that Shepherdsville is 20 miles south of Louisville. Well, I wish maybe I would have heard you say that before I admitted that. <laughs> Cut the tape. <laughs> you know that it's 20 minutes away? <laughs> Okay, but you've never had their bow rounds, obviously. I've never eaten. Have you ever had Bojangles? You know, the only thing I know about Bojangles relates to the West Memphis Three case. That's all I know. (laughs) Did you just say you've never eaten there before? Where would I have eaten a Bojangles, Mogab? Better be somewhere for the way you came at me with you drive twenty minutes to eat these chicken tenders. Mm -mm, Better check yourself. I got a raising canes around the corner. Okay, I'm good on chicken tenders. I do love canes, but that's because you've never had Bojangles. That's it. Uh, You're going to come eat here, and all we're going to do is eat Bojangles and get bubble tea. <laughs> I am going to come there. I'm going to come there. I'm going to come visit, Mogab. Uh, I mean, you can. I don't, we could go see Cocaine Bear, too. But We're going to go see Cocaine Bear. Well, I'm going to come visit, and we'll do a little vlog okay. for the Patreon. 
<laughs> Great. Sounds good. But we'll do it facing away from us the whole time so we don't have to put makeup on. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a dream, oh. honestly. All right. Well, Shepherdsville, as MoGab <laughs> knows, I'm sure. It's the kind of place where everyone knows everyone. Everyone is up in everyone else's business. It's full of the same families that have been there for generations. And Jessica Dishon's murder became the biggest unsolved murder in the state. September 10th, 1999 was a Friday. And that morning was just like every other weekday morning for the Dishon family. Around 5.30, Edna Dishon got up to get ready to go to work at a daycare. Mike Dishon walked her to her car, kissed her goodbye, and then went to wake up 13-year-old Chris and 14-year-old Michael, who everyone calls Bubby. Have you ever known a Bubby? I went to high school with a Bubby. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> you know a Bubby and you're judging me for driving 20 minutes to get a Bojangles. I'm sorry, did you say he walked her outside to give her a kiss goodbye? He walked her to walk her car. Yeah, he walked her to her car, kissed her goodbye. So they're newlyweds is one of them. They have a 13 and a 14-year-old. And a 17-year-old. That's cute. Ah, yeah. Both of the boys, Chris and Bubby, they were still in middle school, but his oldest, Jessica, was a senior in high school. He checked in her room and he saw that she was sleeping, so he let her sleep and he got in his truck to go to work at Cardinal Drywall. Bubby and Chris took the bus to school, and then around 6.30, Jessica should have been getting up and getting herself to school. That's how it went just about every day. But that afternoon, Edna arrived home around 1.30 to see that Jessica's car was still in the driveway, which was weird because Jessica should have been in school until around 2.30. She's not a school skipper. She's not. It's not like her to skip school. The Dishons lived off Dietzville Road, and they had a few neighbors around them, but not many. Most of the houses in the area are really spread out, and there's a lot of farmland. So Edna thought- Welcome to the Commonwealth. Oh, yeah. There's probably a Bobby Derry up in here, too. <laughs> So Edna thought maybe something was wrong with Jessica's car, or maybe she wasn't feeling well, so she stayed home. Like I said, it's really unlike Jessica to miss school. She was really strict about her schedule, and she was rarely late or missed school, or her shifts at Hardy's fast food restaurant where she worked after school. Oh, yes. <laughs> but with her car sitting in the driveway, Edna expected to find Jessica in the house, but she wasn't there. Edna called Mike to ask if he'd taken her to school, and Mike said no. So she asked him if something was wrong with the car. Mike told her that Edna had a key to Jessica's car and suggested she go try it, see if the car would start. At this point, they're both starting to worry, but they're still in that stage of, I'm sure there's a reasonable explanation here. We just have to figure out what it is. This is before cell phones, right? She has a cell phone. It's 1999, so it's not common, it's like but Jessica actually did have a cell phone. Okay. So Edna went and she got the key to Jessica's car. And as soon as she opened the door, she knew that something was wrong. Her purse, her backpack, and her cell phone were all still in the car. No money was missing from her purse and her keys were on the floor in the car. Everything mm. she would have needed for the day was in there. On top of that, there was one shoe on the floorboard of the car. Edna put the key in the ignition to see if it would start and it started up just fine. And then she noticed something that just took all of the air out of her lungs. Oh, no. She grabbed Jessica's phone, which, again, this is 1999, so it was one of those, like, Nokia brick phones with the small screens. My God, love that. And she realized that Jessica must have punched a few numbers into her phone before something interrupted her. On the screen were the numbers 9-1. Nine, nine. Ugh, so close. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, no. Her last hope was the school. Maybe somehow and for some reason Jessica had gotten a ride to school with someone else and left her purse and her phone and her shoe behind. Maybe there was a logical explanation for all of this. But the school said she hadn't been there all day. And at that point, Mike and Edna lost all hope of an explanation. They knew something was horribly, horribly wrong. It was around 5 o'clock when Mike and Edna went to the sheriff's department and told them that their daughter was missing. They explained the circumstances. All her stuff was in the car. The phone that had 9-1 dialed on it. Jessica had a shift that night at her part-time job at Hardee's, and she'd never missed a shift before, but she wasn't there. Everything. God, that's like missing with a capital M. Missing with a capital M. Everything that points to an abduction or something terrible. But the sheriff's deputy they spoke with did not take them seriously. He told them it was Friday. She was probably out of the football game. Or maybe she ran away uh, with her boyfriend. Oh. Mike asked him how she's supposed to run away with one shoe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Mike. (laughs) But the deputy told him to go home and to come back the next day if she was still missing. Oh, I'm sure they got like a great night's sleep. (laughs) No. Yeah, they didn't sleep at all. Mike and Edna were horrified. They couldn't believe the police were being so dismissive. They needed help. Jessica needed help. And there was no one to help them. And just a few statistics on missing kids, because I know we hear this a lot, like, well, they got to wait 24 to 48 to 72 to whatever hours. Every year, 460,000 children are reported missing. Most of them- Oh, my God. I know. For real? Yes. Most of them are between 15 to 17 years old. 91% of those are runaways, and 99.8% of missing kids are found, either by coming home or being returned. Like I said, a lot of them are runaways, but others are just lost or they simply misunderstood directions or miscommunicated plans. When a missing child is reported, investigators need to look at the circumstances involved to determine how they're going to allocate resources. You can't just have this blanket, wait 48 to 72 hours before investigating for every single case, especially since after 72 hours, if it does tend out to be like an abduction or something like that, those are the most important hours. Evidence can be ruined, people's memories fade, and it becomes a lot harder to find them if they do happen to fall into that 0.2% category. That's still better. I mean, that's still really sad, but that statistic is better than I thought. Yes. In this case, it was obvious that they needed to term this a critical missing person and start their investigation right away. Absolutely nothing in this case pointed to Jessica being a runaway. For one thing, her car was still there. How many runaway teenagers had a car and left it behind? Yeah. Then there's the one shoe in the driver's side, indicating that she left with only one shoe on. Her backpack is in the back seat. Her front purse is in the front seat. And she left without her phone. What kind of teenager, even in 1999, would run away without her purse or her phone? Definitely not me since I was racking up a $900 cell phone bill on my Nokia brick. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, and it's obvious that she was trying to dial 911 on that phone. Yeah. You're not exactly like butt dial. I mean, I don't know. No. <laughs> no like not 9 You're really having to punch down the keys, you know? Yeah. I had a Zebra Nokia. So once you got the ones that you could like switch the case on, I had a Zebra print one with orange keys. That sounds like so the cute. The jeweled keys. Remember how you could like pull the little keypad yeah. out? And it was yes. Like- So I'm not a police officer. I'm not a detective. I didn't even take two years of criminal justice like somebody else that I know. But I don't think that you have to be either to know what should have been done in this case. 
First off, Shepherdsville Sheriff's Department doesn't have the resources to handle a missing persons case like this. So they should have called. I'm in feeling a... real safe. I'm feeling real yeah. safe with all of That's Shepherdsville. You're in Louisville. You don't live in Shepherdsville. I'm going there to get chicken tenders once a week. <laughs> well, don't get kidnapped there because they don't know what to do about it. So they should have called in the state police immediately as soon as she was reported missing. State police might have issued an Amber Alert. Those started in 1996. They would have set up a command post and would have assigned officers to work leads. Everything in her car should have been processed by police and cataloged as evidence. Neighbors, family, friends, her boyfriend, all should have been interviewed that day or the next. They should have been searching for her. But instead, they put Jessica into the database for missing and exploited children and then we're basically like, nah, she probably ran away with one shoe. She might be at the football game. No backpack, no car, no cell phone. Let's just wait and see. Let's just wait and see. So Edna and Mike went home and they waited for Jessica. But she never came back. They did not sleep that night. They were so worried. The next day was September 11th, 1999. So they went back to the police station early in the morning. It was like 6 a.m. to tell them that Jessica still hadn't returned. And this time, the police were slightly more receptive. They said they'd send someone out to the house. Mike and Edna expected police to show up and just start swarming their place. Crime scene tape put up, CSI units out collecting evidence. But instead, the sheriff's department sent two officers out. Oh. Jessica's car had basically been abandoned, and they should have impounded the car immediately and had it processed. But instead, those officers figured they could just save some time and search it themselves. They rifled oh, no. through her stuff. They messed around with her phone. They went through her backpack and her purse. They touched every single surface inside the car, outside the car. They touched her shoes. And Mogab, as a true crime newbie, I want to see if even you know the answer to this question. Did they have gloves on? What would you expect to see on their hands? <laughs> <laughs> they better have some gloves on. They touched everything. All of that stuff that should have been considered crucial evidence without even bothering to put on gloves. I can't believe they're not wearing gloves. Yeah, something even you. And I, I don't mean that insultingly. I just mean you're the true crime newbie. Even you know they should have been wearing gloves. And then yeah. they got back in their car and went back to Shepherdsville. The sheriff, Paul oh. Parsley, he said it would have been pointless to seal off the car because everyone in the neighborhood had been all over it by the time they got there. But I'm like, yeah. Is that true? Well, and yeah, everybody had been all over the car, but it took you so long to get there. Right. It's just very frustrating what a bad job they did. They said they felt they acted properly and that the information the Dishons gave them Friday night wasn't enough to act on because they didn't see any blood or scuff marks in the driveway or torn clothes or anything else that would have stood out to anybody other than a parent. How is torn clothes any different than a missing shoe? Okay, good point. Like, or a 9-1 on a phone. Right, like she didn't just Cinderella the driveway and like, you know. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I'm not a parent. I'm certainly not Jessica's parent. And th that scene stood out to me as obvious foul play. Like, but sure, maybe she's at a football game. Yeah, and didn't bring her cell phone. I'm never going into a football game without my cell phone. And for the record, that's not just me saying that. I'm not, like, making up stuff here. The guy that wrote the actual reference guide for police said that they should have treated this like a kidnapping from day one with the information that they were given. But the sheriff's department in Shepherdsville, Kentucky, just wasn't geared toward thinking about abductions. So we should just give them a pass. 
That's what that's what they say anyway. Saturday morning, the day after she disappeared, they did get county and emergency service workers and volunteers on all-terrain vehicles to search the heavily wooded area near the Dishon's home, and they had a trained dog follow Jessica's scent from the front door to her car and then down the driveway before he lost the scent. Which, what would that indicate to you? That, like, she didn't just walk off somewhere else? Like, she was put in a car? That's what it would say to me. She was put in a car and taken... Two days after her disappearance, Mike got on the news and told the media that the sheriff's department was not doing enough to find Jessica. Mike was one of seven kids, and one of his brothers, Stanley, was one of the people out there helping look for Jessica. And he told Mike that if someone around there was going to kill someone, they'd put them in the river bottoms. And my God, the amount of energy I put into trying to figure out what exactly the river bottoms were, because everything I read and watched just said, yeah, the river bottoms, the river bottoms. I'm like, but what are they? I think you texted me that. Like, do you know yeah, what these I are? I was like, do you know what the river bottoms are? Because if you do, <laughs> I'm wasting my time here researching them. I did not. Okay. But according to – okay. Because my first thought was the river bottoms are like a riverbed that's dry. That was kind of what I assumed. But according to Google, a river bottom is the low-lying land along the banks of a river. And it in this case, it seems to be a name the locals use for this wooded area that Salt River runs through. Any Shepherdsville residents out there, just let me know. It's said that anything bad that happens in Bullitt County, it usually happens in the river bottoms. It was known as a dumping ground for trash, stolen vehicle, and other things. So Mike and Stanley get more of their friends and family and basically organize a search party to look for Jessica in the river bottoms. They searched and searched. And at one point, Stanley started complaining about his stomach and he got sick and threw up. A few people had to take him home. The others continued looking, but they didn't find anything out there. Wait, Stanley just threw up like not because he saw anything. No, not because he just like felt sick. So he had to go home. And that night, no one could sleep. Edna was making the bed, Mike was doing the dishes, and their son Chris was out feeding the dogs. And he ran into the kitchen where Mike was and said, Dad, I think I heard Jessica yelling, help me. Mike immediately grabbed a shotgun. He ran outside to find her, knowing that if he found someone with Jessica, he was going to kill them. Oh, yeah. When he ran outside, he saw Stanley pulling up into the driveway, and he asked what was going on, and Mike told him that Chris had heard Jessica yelling for help, and Stanley's like, what are we waiting for? Let's go. They jumped the fence, they ran up the hills, they started looking around this pond, and they saw someone burning a bunch of clothes up on the hill. It was his neighbor, Bucky Brooks, who lived on his father's farm that was adjacent to the Dishon's house. He and his brothers had grown up there, and they were actually related to the Dishons by marriage. One of the brothers was married to one of Mike's sisters. Hey, Kentucky. (laughs) (laughs) They'd known each other. uh, No, they're not related, though. Like, I mean, yeah, I get it. (laughs) Yeah. They'd known each other all their lives, and Mike and Bucky had been childhood friends. A few years before, Bucky and his wife, Irene, had lived next door to the Dishons. And they'd, like, talk through the fence, neighborly stuff like that, always really friendly. But that all changed after Jessica disappeared. Mike started yelling at Bucky. He asked if he'd seen Jessica or heard her, and Bucky said no. Mike told him they were going to go look for her around his property, and he said, no, you're not. He would not allow them to search the farm, the vehicles, or any buildings on the property. 
They were the only people that didn't want their farm searched. Now, the Brooks family has denied telling Mike this, and police had initially searched their farm, but not the house or cars or anything else. Mike called the police department to tell them what was going on. They came out and they wanted to know what clothes Jessica was wearing the night before to give a scent to the dogs. Mike gave him a pair of pink shorts that Jessica had been wearing, and they took the dogs out there to search his barn, the garage, all over the property. The sheriff, Paul Parsley, said that Bucky was acting really strange. The cadaver dogs picked up a scent on Bucky's fire pit, and inside they found two pairs of jersey gloves, which they said had the scent of a decomposed body on them because the dogs hit on it. Things are escalating quickly, (laughs) first of all. Are cadaver dogs different than the first dog that was out there that was like in the driveway? Yeah. Uh, Yes. That dog, I think, was a search and rescue dog. So, like, I can't imagine what it feels like to be a family of a missing person and then all of a sudden you're like oh here's a search and rescue dog and then they're like it's a cadaver that's dog. actually like, a really good point because like where's that line no that's a really good point because they gave the dogs her clothes to wear and if they were cadaver dogs they wouldn't have needed her particular scent they would have been trained to smell a dead body so but they were referred to as cadaver dogs in a source i used so maybe they were search and rescue dogs and they hit – yeah. Either way, there's two separate kinds of dogs and I don't know how you tell the family like we're switching types of dogs. Not to keep going down the dog rabbit hole, well, I but think, I don't know how you – Remember in the Annie Lay case when they were looking they, – they had her as a missing person for a long time before they yeah. turned it to a homicide case. It was a missing person for mm-hmm. a long time. And then they had just so much evidence that sh- that something terrible had happened. They found blood and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's when they brought in – and then they, they brought in the cadaver dogs. So I think it's just when you have, like, evidence that leans towards this is a murder and not just a missing yeah. person. Ugh, that's hard. And how do you train a dog to, like, smell for a decomposing body? Like, well, there are, just, like, body like farms. Know. Like, Texas State has a body farm. Did you know that? Whoa. We're one of, and I think no, the other I one is in Kentucky. Didn't make it. That I honestly, I, I could be, I could be totally wrong. I'm not going to look it up and correct myself, fact check myself. But I think the other body farm might be in Kentucky. I can't believe it's called that. Yeah. I want to throw up. People, it's I'm actually that really I my major. cool. People donate their bodies to science, and they put them in these Stop body it. farms, oh. and they Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. put the bodies in all these different conditions. It's such important work, though, because it tells you, like, if you find a dead body in these – in any of these, like, circumstances, you know how long it's been there. You know, like – How do I mute you? (laughs) (laughs) I am flipping out. Oh, I can't believe you didn't know we had a body farm. It's very – it's, like, really cool. It's, like, one of our claims to fame. It is, like, one of our – Oh, yeah. It is. It's really cool that okay. we have one. Okay, Boco Bucks, calm down <laughs> over there. I don't know our mascot, but I know we have a body farm. <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> what was the difference between you and Kristen's collegiate experience? Well, I know our mascot's <laughs> name, and she knows that we have a body farm. So, true Whoa, story. I am mm-hmm. shook. And give me a quick. I'm I'm getting a little mixed up on the names. Okay, so who is Stanley again? S- okay, so Mike and Edna are Jessica's parents. Stanley is Mike's brother. Okay. So Uncle Stanley. Uncle Stanley. Yes. 
Okay. Uh, and then he must live close by. Yeah, they ish. all live in Shepherdsville. Chris and Bubby okay. are her little brothers, brothers, Jessica's brothers. And Bucky. And Bucky is their neighbor that was burning the okay. clothes on the hill that yes. night. Getting Bucky and Bubby confused. And Bucky is like being all s- s- like suspicious, mm-hmm. not letting them search. Mm-hmm. And now we're finding things in his fire pile, mm-hmm. is what I'm gathering. Yeah, but it was two pairs of gloves and they said they had the scent of a decomposed body on them but the gloves like weren't jessica's gloves so they still didn't have enough to arrest bucky and i read in another article that they never could find anything on the gloves that pointed to human dna at all so it's possible that the hit was like not like legit yeah also how do you smell anything past a campfire have you ever set out by a campfire you can't get that smell of smoke out for weeks i don't think you're smelling anything well that's why we train dogs to do it not us because they have amazing (laughs) senses of smell i mean i guess but this was kind of the last straw for the dishon family they were really angry that the sheriff's department was moving so slowly in this case there are obviously a lot of things they did wrong especially in regards to the car so mike decided that he was done with them and three days after jessica's disappearance he called the fbi and told them he needed their help (laughs) <laughs> is that how that works? I know we, one episode, just Googled right. the FBI's Look, phone number, but. I tried really hard to answer that question, okay? Because the, <laughs> the FBI, he said, Mike said in this interview, that the only way they could come in is if the sheriff's department invited them in or if the parents invited them in. And Mike is like, well, I'm Jessica's dad and I'm inviting you in. And again, I really well tried hard to figure out if that's true, if the FBI will come in if the parents want them to. And I tried really hard. I mean, I mean, I gave it at least four minutes of like hard Googling. <laughs> and in, sure. in those four minutes, here's what I learned. I learned that the FBI rarely investigates homicides, but they can be called in to assist by state or local agencies. This whole thing about being able to get permission to investigate a case they don't have jurisdiction over because the parents wanted them to couldn't find a single thing to back that up. That seem, but that seems to be what happened in this case, but it's also possible that the sheriff's department also invited the FBI in because this was the day that Sheriff Parsley gave a press conference announcing that everything they'd seen appears like an abduction and they were treating the case as such. This is three days after she's been missing. Right. So I, however it happened, the FBI came in, they started immediately doing what should have been done from the start. They went to Jessica's room and they took some of her stuff. They checked for fingerprints. They took Jessica's car that had just been sitting in the driveway for all of those three days, totally unprotected. It ended up showing over 30 sets of fingerprints, none of which could be identified. They called in helicopters and flew over the pond. They brought guys over to walk the pond. And this pond is like in, I think it's on Bucky's, like on the Brooks's property, but it's like right maybe 50 yards from the Dishon's house. Right. So they brought guys over to walk that pond, make sure she wasn't in there. They started doing all the evidence collection, and they performed a search on Bucky's farm. And in his barn, and this is actually his dad's, like, property, but in the barn, they found a picture of Jessica, like her school picture. (gasps) What? And Bucky Brooks became the prime suspect in Jessica's disappearance. It just seemed like every rock and stone they turned over led back to Bucky, but there was still no sign of Jessica. Oh, but that's 
creepy, right? I think so. And that he was like burning clothes up on the hill that night. Yeah, like as we've covered in a previous episode, there's places you can donate to Goodwill or the trash day comes again. I'm never burning. And, but and we I are see not it happen. The I mean, folk, you know. We- well, sure, but like <laughs> I've I've got some of that that runs in me and I've seen people do it. It still <laughs> looks like a huge pain in the ass. Like, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Until September 27th, 1999. This is 17 days after Jessica went missing. A woman named Karen Hobbs was driving through the river bottoms on the way to her job as a bus driver when she thought she saw something blue in a wooded area near Mount Washington. <gasps> Mount Washington. Do you know it? Yeah, it's where Russell worked. Oh. Wait, did we clarify what the river bottoms are then? Look, a wooded area with a river okay. that okay. people dump trash in. No, we didn't <laughs> clarify because I don't know. I really tried hard <laughs> to figure it out. That's uh, that's as far as I got. It's a wooded area. Mm. There's Salt River. People do bad things there. The but it has a road that also goes through it, like through this wooded area. So she's driving along. She sees something blue in this wooded area. She didn't think much of it at the time. But later on, while she's working, it kind of popped back into her mind. She started thinking that it might have been a pair of blue jeans. So after work, she got a friend to go back to the site with her. And I love this woman because it's like exact. I would never call the police over. Maybe I saw blue jeans in the woods. Like I just caught a glimpse of something blue. I'd be like, let's go check it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would probably be me too. I mean, maybe not now, but. Yeah. Back then. So yeah. a- after work, she got a friend. I-, I would go in the daytime though. It would be bright and sunny, sun in the top of the sky. Yeah, we've established that in flesh <laughs> and in spirit. I'm not going anywhere in the dark. Right. After work, nowhere near the summer solstice, so I'm sure it was like <laughs> getting dark. Yeah. She got a friend to go back to the site with her. And this is an area that had already been searched by residents of the area, the sheriff's deputies. Nobody had found anything. But Karen and her friend approached what they thought was the pair of blue jeans to see that it was the decomposing body of Jessica Dishon. Oh, my God. What? I didn't think that's what you were going to say. Sheriff Parsley had to come and inform. Wait. She saw it at the beginning on her way to work and no one else saw it? Oh, I don't think this is a heavily driven, like, road here. Yeah. But no, nobody else saw this peak of blue. Sheriff Parsley had to come and inform Mike and Edna that they'd found Jessica. They asked him if she was alive, and he said, no, she's dead. And Edna just screamed at him, telling him to call her a runaway now. She said they'd tried to tell him that she was not a runaway. The next morning, an FBI forensic team started removing and examining Jessica's body. It was badly decomposed, and it was missing part of a limb and some of her fingers. During their investigation of the area, they discovered that someone had wanted her body found. 18 hours before her body had been discovered, she'd been moved 15 feet so that she'd be more visible to the road. (gasps) There were no drag marks between the two spots where the body had been, so they like figured out that the body had been over here. 
and that it was now found here, but no drag marks in between. How did they know that without drag marks? Just like there was stuff at both places? I'm assuming. I don't know details about that, but I'm assuming they could tell, yeah, that there was something over here that told them that the body was here. And this told investigators that there was at least two people that had pulled debris off the body before moving it over. So there must have been like some debris on the body. I don't know. They asked her parents to come identify the body to make sure that it was Jessica. Mike said that he couldn't go. He didn't want to see his daughter like that. So Edna went. And (gasps) – Oh, that feels – I know. One. Sometimes I'm like, is that necessary? Like if they both don't want to and it's like a high profile case and we know it's her. Or can we just like wait for the DNA results, I guess? Like assume that it's her and go from there. I know. The body was so decomposed, Edna couldn't even tell from her face if it was her daughter. See? So then it's like, why Why are we even putting her through that? Yeah. Luckily, Jessica had a butterfly tattoo on her hip, so she searched the body for the tattoo, and there it was. And she was devastated. I know. Jessica's death destroyed her family. Her brothers, Bubby and Chris, they took it really hard. Every day after Jessica's death, Edna wrote letters to her that she keeps in this scrapbook. She said that she hopes that Jessica isn't mad at her because she wasn't there for her that day to protect her. She quit her job so that now she can walk her sons to the bus stop and she waits on the porch for them to get home from school. And she said, oh my goodness, if my family had been more important to me last year, this is like the year after that she's saying this. So it's like in 2000. She said, if my family had been more important to me last year and I hadn't been working, Jessica would be home right now. Edna, you gotta have a job. Like, you can't. Yeah. Obviously, she's not being fair to herself. But I can't imagine that kind of pain. And I, I can see also as a mom, you might be just looking for a way that this is your fault. You know, like Mm – Like, you just want to blame yourself almost because you think, like, if I had done something differently, she could still be here. I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm sorry, are you crying? No, I'm not. Dry eyes today. I I think sometimes, I don't know, obviously, but I wonder sometimes if it's easier to blame yourself before other people get a chance to blame you. Because someone will always, Mm -hmm. even though it has nothing to do with you, not your fault, like, Mm And that's even before social media people come in, in the comments. But I wonder if it's just easier to call it yourself before someone else, well, especially like in a marriage and And all obviously that, like, anybody that's going to say you shouldn't have been working, you should have been home with your kids who are school age, middle school and high school age. She's in high school. Yeah. Obviously not. Yeah. I mean, obviously not. <laughs> On October 2nd, Jessica's funeral was held at a tiny brick church in Cedar Grove, which is the area of Shepherdsville they lived in. So it was not Mount Washington. It was Cedar Grove. More than 400 people came out for the funeral and sang Amazing Grace while she was buried. And this affected the entire community. This was a community that had always felt really safe. It's a rural community where the police have never even heard of the word abduction before. And after Jessica's murder, people were scared. It seemed like it was all anyone talked about. High school students were afraid to walk alone even 100 yards to the bus. This is the country, you know? Things like this aren't supposed to happen in places like that. The autopsy revealed that Jessica had been struck in the face, probably with a fist, hard enough to break her jaw, and that she was strangled to death. 
But it also showed that Jessica was not killed immediately. She was most likely kept alive for several days, like during the time that the Dishons were begging the police Mm -hmm. to help them, Mm -hmm. which is just heartbreaking. I, I went back and forth on the sheriff's department a lot. But apparently at this point, I think that once the sheriff's department started taking them seriously, which I still think is inexcusable that it took them that long because of all the evidence pointing to something is terribly wrong here. But I think once they started taking them seriously, they did what they could with the very little resources they had. But it took them too long to begin the search and to call in the FBI when the scene was just so clearly an abduction. And they they just need a complete training rehaul if their officers don't even know to wear gloves when sifting through potential evidence at a possible crime scene. Hey, what are the odds that you're going to like end up being a like education consultant <laughs> for, for police station? You like going with your PowerPoint deck and you're, like role play scenarios. What are my credentials? Well, I've read a <laughs> lot of articles and I've watched a lot of documentaries. So I know. I what's drag up. you through the mud in every episode. <laughs> yeah. Disclaimer not an expert, not an expert on police procedure. <laughs> Oh, no, you sound like I'm it. really forming my opinions around people that like the guy that wrote the book, literally the yeah. resource manual said <laughs> this should have been treated as a kidnapping. All the signs were there. And I wish that this sheriff's department because I did feel bad. I feel for that. I'm just when I see somebody's face and they're upset because this sheriff, this sheriff was not someone who's like, we did everything right. I mean, he is saying that. Yeah. But he's also crying about Jessica. You know, I mean, he's not yeah, like, like it's his community, too. Yeah. And I wish they would just say like, hey, we messed up and we're going to get new training for our deputies and detectives instead of just doubling down. And they're just insisting that they didn't botch this case from the get go. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, the sheriff, he was interviewed in this cold case files episode. He is really upset about it. But. I just feel like he's making excuses. He's saying stuff like they were a small department with only two detectives. And he said they worked day and night on this case. And that's all great. But it just doesn't make up for the fact that they didn't secure the car quick enough. And they were parading around and they're all ungloved. Yeah. And those gloves feel like a basic necessity. Yeah. And those 12 hours that the sheriff's office waited to do anything about it, it might not have made a huge difference, but it might have made a huge difference difference you know right i'm sure the killer's fingerprints were on that car because i think she was inside the car when the struggle started because of the shoe yeah she got pulled out yes it sounds like and if they'd gone that night and they'd impounded the car they might have caught on to the killer a lot faster anyway weeks went by and the dishes and some of their relatives started getting disturbing harassing phone calls Mike Dishon said he would get calls that were just like someone breathing heavily, and other calls where someone would yell, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. The Dishons used caller identification services and were able to trace the origin of the calls to Bucky Brooks and his brother Joseph. Hmm. On October 23rd, the Brooks brothers were arrested for the phone calls and for stalking one of Mike's cousins, Alan Mattingly. And this came up in several, like, newspaper articles. I had to go newspapers.com for this, okay? Like, I was, oh. I was digging deep into oh. this. Can't wait to link all that. I don't know how many different ways I could have tried to Google 
Alan Mattingly stalking David Brooks, Bucky Brooks, Joseph Brooks. But like, <laughs> I tried everything. Brooks Brothers. I could I not find any other information on the stalking situation, but it was in court documents and it was in several newspaper articles. But it just said he was also arrested for stalking Mike's this cousin Alan Mattingly. This was something else. Oh, the the bomb threat. To the yes. Uh huh. And the in the uh, three billboards yeah. case. On yeah. our bonus up ep- our bonus episode of this month. <laughs> yes. On the Patreon. It was similar to that. Uh those are all the details I could come up with is that he was arrested for stalking their cousin. So in January, so this would be January 2000, Bucky sentenced to 30 days in jail and he later continued to harass the Dishon family. They were having a July 4th cookout at their home when someone from the Brooks farm started shooting at them. Shooting at them. <laughs> People at the cookout said that shots were fired 12 to 15 times with bullets kicking oh up goodness. dirt just feet around where like 40 people were standing. Surely not real bullets. Bullets! Real bullets! They said it was one of the <laughs> brothers, Herbert Brooks, but the family said it was the father, James Brooks, who was trying to shoot frogs in a pond on the farm, which is like 50 yards from the Dishon's driveway. Ooh, got bad, bad aim, yeah, my friend. That's exactly what I said. No dead frogs were found in the pond. So either he's a terrible shot or he's full of crap. And 50 yeah, yards so. doesn't sound like much, but it's half a football field. Like you'd have to be a real bad shot if you're aiming for the pond and you hit 50 yards away. And hey, maybe just don't shoot frogs when there's like a family gathering. Or hey, like why do you need to shoot the froggies? What are they doing to you? Okay, so the Brooks family said they were doing all of this stuff because they had been harassed by the press and the community. And so they're taking it out on a family that had just lost their daughter as if that would get them back in the good graces of the community. Anyway, Bucky quickly became the prime suspect in Jessica's murder, really the only suspect at this time, and police brought him in for questioning. Bucky got caught up in a couple of lies right off the bat. At first, he'd told police that he'd seen Jessica walking down the road that day, but later he told them he'd been at work that day, but police told them that they knew he'd come into work a little late. Bucky said that that was because he and his wife were trying to have a baby, but police said no. They'd talked to his wife, and she'd already (laughs) told them that they were not having sex that morning. (laughs) She was not (laughs) ovulating. So Bucky said maybe he'd slept in that day then. Police asked him what he would say if Jessica was found with his fingerprints on her. And Bucky said, if my fingerprints are there, I'll have to admit it. Ew. What? Yeah. Okay, OJ Simpson. (laughs) If I did it. Life doesn't happen biweekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. EarnIn is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the EarnIn app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, 
in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. Jessica's legs had been tied with rope and police matched it to rope in Bucky's truck. Oh my gosh. Someone arrest this man. The rope had flakes of red and silver paint that also matched Bucky's truck. They asked Bucky to take a polygraph test and he failed. And I, you know. Disclaimer, I've said it once, I'll say it again. Nope. <laughs> Polygraph tests are an investigative tool. The whole point of them is to really get a confession, but only that confession would be admissible in court. And only so long as you don't mention the word polygraph. The results are completely inadmissible. Anything else about them, completely inadmissible. Except I do feel like <laughs> when I apply the law the way I want to apply it. <laughs> Yes, this is why you will never be a lawyer. (laughs) We got MOGAB justice. (laughs) The Texas law hawk. (laughs) I can't do that. Oh, you can Texas law pigeon over there. (laughs) (laughs) The the law dove. (laughs) Bird sounds by True Crime Creepers. (laughs) (laughs) Get it on your Spotify playlist wherever you listen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's a good one right i i my bird sounds i come They're correct with the bird yeah noises. i gotta say yeah so police collected dna samples from bucky and his brothers joseph and herbert mike and edna knew it had to have been bucky that killed jessica all of the evidence pointed to him but when they found out he failed the polygraph they were certain of it mike and edna hated the idea that it had been someone they knew. You know, in the beginning, they thought only a stranger could have done this. But for it to have been their neighbor and their friend made it so much worse. But it wasn't until a year and a half later that any arrests were made because police needed to collect as much evidence as possible to make sure they got a guilty verdict. 
So on January 19th, 2001, Bucky Brooks was charged with murder, kidnapping, tampering with physical evidence, and complicity. He was charged without bond. His brother Joseph, who went by Tommy, and Bucky's real name is David, by the way. I hate it here. He was also indicted and charged with tampering with physical evidence and complicity. So he wasn't charged with the kidnapping or the murder, just with the tampering of physical evidence. So I'm thinking that they were- Is the tampering from burning? The burning this time? No, I don't think that had anything to do with it, honestly. I'm thinking that they were accusing him of helping Bucky move the body so that it could be found. Oh. But I couldn't find more information on why they were charging him with that. So that's really just a guess. I'm not sure. Jessica's family was so relieved when the grand jury came back with the indictment. The Commonwealth attorney for Bullitt County, which that's what they kept referring to him as. So I'm guessing that's like the defense, like the DA, but it's called something different in Bullitt County. Anyways, his name is Mike. Okay, what were they calling the him? The Commonwealth attorney. Oh, that's because we're, we're a Commonwealth, not a state. So it's like a state attorney. Like what? Kentucky is a Commonwealth. Kentucky's not, not a state. state? It's another- we have 50 I mean, states, state. and Kentucky is one of them. Right. You have, like, three commonwealths, Kentucky, Virginia. Is this, like, the UK? Because I don't understand that either. I know. I'm, I don't know. Is yeah. Hong Kong part of China? I've been trying to figure that out forever. I don't get <laughs> any of it. Uh, it's so complicated. Is it, like, Puerto Rico? Because I understand Puerto Rico. <laughs> the Virgin Islands? Someone help. <laughs> Someone help me with geography. I, I actually – I have been wondering this. What is the difference in a state and a commonwealth? The distinction is in the name alone. The commonwealths are just like any other state in their politics and laws, and there is no difference in their relationship. The nation as a whole, when used to refer to U.S. states, there's no difference between state and commonwealth. So they just needed to complicate it. How many commonwealths? That's what 50 it sounds states. like. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Just somebody trying to complicate. But you'll never say, you'll never hear no like people reason. in Kentucky call it a state. How many commonwealth, or they call it a commonwealth state. How many commonwealth? There are four. Do you know what they are? Absolutely I gave you two of them. What? What was the second one? Delaware. Virginia. Oh, I knew it was Kentucky, Virginia are the ones I knew. Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. There's only four. Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and then Kentucky. Kentucky. So three of the original. I said. Three of the original. Welcome to the Commonwealth. Plus Kentucky. The bluegrass. The Commonwealth. That's just what they call it. All right. Well, the Commonwealth attorney for Bullitt County, Mike Mann, said that he was considering seeking the death penalty and Joseph could face up to five years in prison. The Brooks family's reaction were really interesting to me. In the articles I read, they never said like, oh, Bucky could never do that. They said things like, if he had done this, he would have left town a long time ago. And it stood out to me after doing our bonus episode on the Three Billboards case I was just about to say, imagine them not being a murderer because they would have been a, a better, better murderer. murderer. Exactly. Yes. When Aaron is so in our three billboards case, Aaron Page pointed out that her father's family never said that he couldn't have done it. They just said he would have been better at hiding the body if it had been him. The only person I saw that said that he couldn't have done it was his lawyer, John Spanauer, <laughs> who this article had said has represented the Brooks family for years but then also said the family couldn't afford private counsel, so he would only be assisting in the trial. He said he'd known Bucky a long time, and he'd never known him to be violent or even have a temper. He said he was just a guy trying to do the best he can with what he has. That's something I'm never trying to have, like, a punch card to. Like, 
here's your rapid rewards program for your attorney. Like, right. <laughs> just, you know, like just on with that family so often. I mean, I guess people put lawyers on like retainer or whatever it's called, but. Yeah, but they can't even afford private counsel. They are not having him on retainer. I don't understand. (laughs) Right. Like, I don't know. All right. January 15th, 2003. This is three years after Jessica's death. Bucky's trial begins. I learned in the Veronica Mars movie that a good defense needs a compelling alternate theory. So Bucky's defense tried to do just that. They called two young men, Jason Dunford and James Coulter, to the stand as alternate suspects. Oh. They had bad reputations in the town. They were the types of guys that were always in trouble, the type who would have been the usual suspect for any crimes going on in Shepherdsville. And they'd been friends with Jessica. They all went to high school together. So they're her age. Yes. I don't know if they're exactly her age or if they maybe were in a different grade, but I know they were in high school at the same time. Witnesses said they saw them with Jessica the day before she disappeared. They said they'd all been in a black Camaro. And on the stand, Jason admitted to selling her drugs that day. And just, this is not in my script, but this was really... So in one of the episodes I watched, they said that Jessica had been at a party the night before. And that's where this whole, like, drug deal had gone on. She'd gone to meet up with her boyfriend. She'd met up with Jason Dunford and James Coulter. And they'd sold her drugs. But her best friend says that they were together the day before, and they'd been, like, driving around, they'd been having this great night, and then she'd gone home, like, to go to bed. So I don't really understand, like, what she was doing the day before. I couldn't reconcile those two stories. It's almost like you don't think her best friend would lie because you think her best friend would want to know what happened, but then it's like, if they're in high school, would her best friend maybe lie because she was also they're getting drugs and just like doesn't want to be like found out as you know maybe and maybe i think the interview was before this trial so she didn't know that they were going to call these yeah maybe i mean maybe she was like leaving out the part of them going to this party mike and edna were really upset with the defense that they interpreted as just trying to make jessica look like a bad person mike just thought they were lying because he said he knew jessica didn't do drugs But she was a 17-year-old, and 17-year-olds can be really good at hiding things from their parents. Yes, at every parent ever. Especially when that thing is drugs. And the autopsy showed that Jessica did have LSD in her system. Oh, my goodness. Which is what he said he'd sold her that night. Yeah. Even with all that, the trial was going pretty well for the prosecution at first. They talked about Bucky saying he'd have to admit it if his fingerprints were found on the body, that weird statement. Mm-hmm. The yeah, rope that was found, weird. all the circumstantial evidence that pointed towards Bucky. But the sheriff's department continues to bungle the case. Oh. First of all, they did not keep – they do not care about evidence at all. They could care less about evidence. They did not keep Jessica's body parts frozen. What? It was key evidence in this case. It was in a box marked, keep frozen, keep frozen, in giant letters, literally on every single side of the box. And they just didn't store it properly. They did not keep it frozen. Ew. Uh, yeah. So I'm shouting. That was so loud. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm appalled by everything. Yeah. And then they put the lead investigator on the stand. And I'm sure it will shock you, considering how well they'd done with the case up to this point. But this did not go well. Defense attorneys asked him why he thought Bucky was the one that did it. Like, why do you think he's the one? What pointed you to him? They just kept pressing him. Why did you arrest him? Why did you charge him? Over and over. 
And finally, he said, because he failed a polygraph they issued to him. Oh, no. That is completely inadmissible in court. You cannot mention a polygraph. You certainly can't mention the results of the polygraph. And they declared a mistrial. Not my court. Yeah. Mike did not in the court of Oga. That would not be a mistrial. <laughs> this is why we have laws on the books. <laughs> oh, man, I am a loose cannon. Maybe just turn your commonwealth into Mogab land since. <laughs> oh, into Mogab land. Yeah, she, listen, that woman would try and give out polygraphs for everything. <laughs> Mike Dishon stood up and just started yelling. Edna started crying. It was a horrible outcome. A mistrial does not mean innocent, and it does not invoke double jeopardy. You can be tried again in the case of a mistrial, but police knew that they needed more evidence before they could try Bucky again, and the case went cold for 10 years. Oh my goodness. Mike and Edna were so angry, knowing that the sheriff's office wasn't doing anything to find more evidence. It didn't seem like anyone had any sort of plan for charging anyone with this crime. They even gave all of the evidence back to the family. Like, here you go. A pretty good indication that they don't intend to take the case anywhere. I hope that box wasn't part of it. No, no, it wasn't. Eventually, the Dishons stormed into the sheriff's department and told them they all looked real busy around there. The sheriff just basically tried to shush them. And on this episode that the parents were interviewed on, Edna, she's in the interview and she's like, oh, yeah, they said, we're real busy. We're on the phone. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I want to watch that just because I can hear that accent. I love it. We're on the phone. (laughs) I just thought it was the funniest thing. They told them they were doing all they could. And I just can't blame the Dishons for not trusting that the police are doing all that they can for them for this case. It's been 10 years. Right. Or, well, I don't know when this, like, confrontation is happening. That didn't happen 10 years later. But Jessica's murder was obviously hard on the Dishons, and it really affected their marriage. Eventually, Edna told Mike that she wanted a divorce. And on this episode of Cold Case Files, Mike said, I lost my daughter, and then I lost my wife, too. And to this I day, that happens so often. Yeah. I feel like that happens like yeah. nine times out of 10, mm-hmm. there's a divorce. Mm-hmm. And to this day, he said they still don't talk. And I think that's really sad too, because they're the only ones yeah. that know what the other one is going through. You know, I mean, they're right. But yeah, it's, it's tough. All right. But then I want to solve this murder and then I want them to get back together. I know they don't. But in June of 2012, The sheriff tells them that he's assigned a new detective to the case named Lynn Hunt. They basically pulled this woman and they they hired her to kind of look into cold cases. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine there was that many in Shepherdsville. So (laughs) Edna, maybe it was Bullock County that hired her. Anyways, Edna was hoping that she was a guardian angel. She figured she's a lady, she's a mom, and she's going to be the one to get the job done because always. Yep. Mike stopped by to see Detective Hunt, who knew that it was probably the largest unsolved case in Kentucky, and it had only stayed alive because of Mike and Edna. Mike asked her what she was planning on doing, and she said she was looking into some different things, and she'd keep him updated as the investigation progressed, and she said she would not stop until she found the person responsible. Ugh, I love that drive that women bring to the scene. Mm -hmm. Like, yes. 
Finally, after 13 years, it seemed like someone was taking this case seriously. She got to know the family, and they had a lot of faith in her. She came to visit the house, and she sat down with Mike and Bubby, and Mike said he got the impression that she knew what she was doing. She went to Jessica's room to just try and get to know her, and she was surprised to see that they had left her room exactly the same as the day that she left. For 13 years. They were? I feel like that's what I always expect. For Really? For 13 years, the room had been completely left untouched. She was flabbergasted. But I couldn't imagine going in there and trying to take anything out. I would be leaving that room. Yeah. Yeah. While she was there, Bubby said he had something that might help her. This is so ridiculous. Okay. He goes to the hall closet. He takes out a hat box. He opens it up. And Detective Hunt is basically horrified at what is inside. It's Jessica's shoe, her wallet, and her cell phone. All the evidence that was in her car is in a hat box in their closet now because they'd given it back. Oh, because they gave it back. Uh Oh, I thought, oh, I was like, that never got turned in. Got it. It's because they just handed it back up. Uh huh. So now it's just collecting yeah. dust up there with, like, their board games. Yeah, exactly. It's not in an evidence locker somewhere, especially considering this is still an open case. Yeah. No, it's in the family's hall closet. Detective Hunt took the evidence. <laughs> she was like, thank, like, oh, don't knock over grandma's much. recipes. Yeah. <laughs> she goes through the original evidence that they had and case notes that led to the mistrial of Bucky Brooks. And she said there was such little paper evidence. That it was mostly just like loose leaf paper thrown into boxes and napkins and sticky notes. There were, (gasps) yeah. Napkins? And sticky notes. Like, get this, we can't get them a notebook? Right. No phone numbers. One spiral notebook? Yeah. No phone numbers of anyone that they'd interviewed. No information at all, really. Detective Hunt knew that private detectives had been hired by the defense during the trial. And she wanted all the information that they had. So she borrowed a box truck and she went to the defense attorney's office. She got all the boxes on Bucky's case. And she said the defense's investigation was way better than the prosecution's investigation. Inside one of the boxes, she uncovered Bucky's mental evaluation with information on it that she hadn't known before. It stated that he had an IQ of 61. According to the model policy... Yeah, I'll explain. I don't know what, like, a normal scale is. Average is 100. According to the highest? uh, I want to say I think there's somebody in the 180s, but, like, 162 stands out to me. Mine is 134. Thank you very much. Hmm, I should – how do you take one? Look, according to some free online (laughs) (laughs) Okay, bye. What are you, also a Taurus? Like, okay. I am a Taurus, thank you. According to the model policy of examinees published on polygraph.org, because I looked into this, (laughs) people with diagnosed developmental disorders should not be tested unless it can be reasonably expected that the goals of the program, investigation, agency, or individual can be met by the polygraph testing. That includes people with severe cognitive impairment because they're unable to understand the questions well enough to answer them. An IQ of 70 or below is considered to be a cognitive impairment, and Bucky's was 61. This also sheds a lot of light on those so-called lies Bucky gave to police. 
Someone functioning at his level may not have understood the question or even had the ability to recall the day and what they were doing. It also explains his really weird fingerprint statement. I'd have to admit it if my fingerprints were found on the body. He said that after police had asked him a hypothetical question, what would you do if we found your prints on the body? It's possible he didn't understand what they were saying. It's possible he thought, well, whoever's fingerprints are on the body must be the killer. So if mine were on there, that means I would be the killer. You know what I mean? Like, it's not him. The way he's interpreting it is like, what would you do if you did it? Well, then I'd have to admit it. I'd admit it if I did it. He's saying I would admit it. I'd tell you. Yes. I think that's exactly what he's saying. If I did it, I would tell you. But I didn't do it. I don't know. I think he did it. (laughs) Detective Hunt said this didn't mean that he was innocent, but it made her start to think that maybe he didn't do it. And if he didn't, Mm. then she needed to prove who did. The main piece of evidence against him was that rope found on the farm identical to the rope wound around her leg. But no one can actually prove 100% that it's the same rope because apparently trace evidence is only 80% sure. It's not enough evidence to say that for sure he did it. 80% sounds like it gets the job done for me. (laughs) 40% 40 gets the job done for you. (laughs) For this podcast, it does. Your expectations are not high enough. The bar is on the floor for you, basically. (laughs) Bucky was charged solely based on politics and the pressure to charge someone. I mean, if you think about the way they botched their investigation, I mean, really to the point of extreme negligence. They had no choice but to, quote, unquote, get it solved. And by solved, I mean put someone in prison for the crime. They had not pursued any other suspects at the time because it was so easy to pin it on Bucky. And he was doing all that weird stuff with the phone calls and the harassment and the stalking. Like, So Detective Hunt turns her attention to other suspects, starting with Jason Dunford and James Coulter, the alternate suspects from the trial. But because of the mistrial, The defense hadn't actually been able to present that theory that they could have done it, and no one had followed up on it since. In the intervening years, Jason Dunford had died in a car accident, and James Coulter was in jail on a drug charge. So Detective Hunt went to the jail to interview him. I would say that's the least surprising outcome for Uh both of them, I feel like, from what you told me. Yeah. So James Coulter tells her he's not going to answer any more questions about Jessica, but he did not kill her. But then he told her that he saw her at the party and he sold her some acid and that was it. He said he and Jason had picked up some girl at the party and they brought her back to the motel and they hadn't left until sometime the next morning. So Detective Hunt asked him if anyone had seen him and he said the maintenance guy had seen him. So Detective Hunt went to the motel that he said he'd been at with Jason. And of course, they didn't have records that went back that far. Of course, it's not the same maintenance guy, I feel like. Of course, it is the same maintenance guy. He's still working there. Yeah. (laughs) So she manages to track him down. Same maintenance guy. He's still working there. And he remembered the trial. He said he'd followed this case, the Bucky trial. And he said he remembered seeing the two of them being there that night. She saw this as a clear alibi. I see this as somebody saying something 13 years later. and uh, But she just kind of felt this case crumbling beneath her. Like, she didn't think it's them. She doesn't really think it's Bucky at this point. But she had no information pointing her in any direction. And she wasn't sure the case would ever be solved. Oh, I need it to be. Be my peep of the week, Lynn. (laughs) So she started putting out feelers. 
that she was looking for information about this murder. And she got a call about an inmate who said he had information about Jessica's case. He said he knew who killed her. And at first, Detective Hunt thought this was your run-of-the-mill jailhouse informant, a giant liar liar with his pants just burning on fire, trying to get a deal (laughs) in order to get out of prison. And she didn't trust that the information was going to be any good. But in June 2013, she went and met with him to see what he had to say. He said he'd been placed in the same cell with an inmate who told him that he'd known Jessica Dishon. Detective Hunt asked him what he told him, and he said that he'd had her for a couple of days and then took her life. He said the reason he did the mutilation to her, like the fingers, was because he was trying to make it look like drug dealers or the cartel had done it. Like the the cartel cartel in Shepherdsville. The cartel in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. In the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Just passing on through. Right. On their way to Colombia, Mexico. (laughs) Right. Right there on the border, you know. (laughs) Yeah. The informant said that this inmate seemed angry at Jessica, and Detective Hunt asked why. And the informant said he figured it was because she'd gotten a boyfriend. He said the inmate kept referring to the boyfriend as little bastard or little bitch. Detective Hunt asked why that would have made him so angry, and he said the inmate told him that it was because he'd been molesting her since she was little. (gasps) And when she grew up, she said she was going to tell. He hit her and took her to a barn. He said he kept her there alive for three days, and then he strangled her, dumped her body at the river bottoms, and then buried her shoe under a big tree that had fallen. So she asked for the inmate's name, and he told her. It was Stanley Dishon, Jessica's uncle, Mike Dishon's brother. A brother that Mike had taken in and given him a home and gotten him a job, like really taking care of him. This is Uncle Stanley. Uncle I thought Stanley, Stanley. was out. Why yeah. is he in prison? He was out. He was looking with Mike for Jessica. At the time, Stanley was in prison for raping and sodomizing his own two children. Oh, my God. This is the worst night of my life. The Dishon family I'm didn't believe up. this about Stanley. They felt like he'd been falsely accused and in prison for 10 years for a lie about this situation with his kids. So Detective Dishon had to prove to Mike that his own brother had killed his daughter because she immediately believed that this informant was telling the truth. There were just too many specific details for him to have been able to make it up. He had details that only the killer would know, things that hadn't even been in the case file. Like about this missing shoe buried under the tree. So Detective Hunt knew that the proof would be in this shoe. If they could find that shoe, it would prove that the informant had been telling the truth. So she went to the river bottoms and she starts digging. And it's raining really hard, but she keeps digging and searching. Jessica's brother, Bubby, is helping her dig. But at a certain point, they dug almost 200 holes. It's been six or seven hours. It seems unlikely they're ever going to find the shoe. So they said, just forget it. This isn't going to happen. They got back in the truck. And as they're driving, Bubby points out and says, oh, that's where they the kids used to party at. And Detective Hunt looks over at where he's pointing and just slams on the brakes. So there in the river bottoms where Bubby is pointing was a barn. Detective Hunt asked if this barn had ever been searched, and Bubby told her he didn't think so. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So they peeked inside, and she saw a very small piece of material 
peeking out from under some mud and garbage just piled on top of it. So they go into the barn and she pulls this material out and she sees that it's a bed sheet with a floral pattern on it and she immediately recognizes it. It is the exact same pattern as the comforter on Jessica's bed. Oh my God. Detective Hunt now says it wasn't some great investigative work that led her to finding the sheet. It was just the right place at the right time. And I say it might not have been found based on brilliance and deduction, but it was found because finally someone was doing their damn job and looking. We know why it wasn't found (laughs) originally. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. There is no way that this sheet should have been in that barn for 13 years without ever being found, but it was just what yeah, they needed. Yeah, clean out your barns, people. Yeah. Have you ever partied well, in a barn? You don't like strike me as a barn party. The Delt barn. I I literally <laughs> was about to say, don't you dare come at me with the Delt barn. You know that's the not what barn. I mean. My friend Liz got married like right outside a barn and then had her that's reception a venue. in the barn. Okay. Well, that's it. That's all I got for you. (laughs) The Delt house and a wedding. (laughs) The Delt barn and a wedding. That's all I got. Okay. Clean out your barns, people. (laughs) I think this is like an abandoned barn that's like in the middle of the river bottom. Yeah, sure, but it's on someone's land. Yeah, and it was just what they needed because this sheet could corroborate the informant's story that Jessica had been held in a barn. Like, how else would he have known that? They drove fast to the house and they raced to Jessica's bedroom and Detective Hunt pulled back the comforter on the bed to reveal the mattress with no sheet on it. Like nobody had turned down that mattress in 13 years or that be- that and comforter. No sheet? No sheet on the mattress. So is the fitted sheet? I don't know. There's no sheet on the mattress. I don't sleep with a top sheet. I don't sleep with a top sheet either. Well, I mean, I do now that I like have to be civilized and I share a bed with someone, but... I don't have to be civilized, and I don't sleep with a top no sheet. One, no one needs a top sheet in Texas. It's no, hot as hell. Hot as hell. <laughs> right. But that makes me think that who put the sheet, like, who brought the sheet out there? Because she was struggling. She got moved against her will. One of the theories is that Stanley shows up. He's, like, yelling at her about having a boyfriend or whatever. And Jessica's like, I'm going to tell what you've been doing to me. And he grabs her out of the car and takes her back inside and maybe, like, rapes her in her room, punches her in the face, grabs the sheet to wrap her body with, and then takes that with him. Mm, Got it. Yeah. Or maybe he punched – I'm thinking he might – he could have, like, punched her in the face and she passed out because it was hard enough to break her jaw. She could have passed out. Yeah. And he's like, oh, shit. And he's like, I can't just put her in my truck, like, DNA, da-da-da. Like, I yeah. mean, I don't know. This guy's kind Grab of a – sheet. Not, yeah. So he went in and, like, got the sheet off her bed and, like, wrapped her in it. I don't know. Oh. But this was the turn of events that this case needed. If the informant had been right about the barn, Detective Hunt believed that he'd been right about the sexual assaults as well, especially since Stanley was currently in prison for raping his own children. She believed that there had been some type of sexual encounter with Jessica and that Stanley had taken the sheet as a forensic countermeasure, but no DNA was ever found on the sheet. So if he'd done anything on her on the sheet, nothing was ever found. They knew they'd need to develop a motive for why Stanley had killed her. So she went to visit Stanley Dishon in prison, who seemed very nervous to hear that they'd reopened the Jessica Dishon case. Stanley denied everything Detective Hunt said, but she just told him, 
Stanley, I know. She knows. She knows. So Detective Hunt had enough evidence to indict Stanley Dishon, but now she had to tell Jessica's parents. So in October of 2013, she called them in, and they came in separately because they've gotten divorced by this point. <sighs> I know. I don't love that storyline, but... I know. When Mike came in, Detective Hunt didn't sugarcoat it. She said she believed it was his brother, Stanley, that killed her. Mike didn't believe it at first, but when he got to thinking about it, knowing what he'd done to his own children, he thought, what Yeah, did me- he believe that? Like, did he believe that? I don't think he just- did, because it's easier to not. not but then yeah. now you're hearing that, that this has been happening to his daughter, and now you're like... Oh, okay. Yeah. So he thought, what makes me think he wouldn't do that to my kid? Mm-hmm. And also, I didn't put this in the script, but they, I think, I don't know if she asked him this or if it came up somewhere, but when Stanley was like throwing up in the woods while they were searching for her body, it was like within a, oh, it was like they were getting closer to like where she was at that time. And he started throwing I forgot up. he was the one that was throwing up. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. Yeah, it was... Why didn't I suspect him then? I'm getting very bad at this. I know. I was real happy you just grazed on past (laughs) that because I thought that was, like, way too obvious, but we kept going. (laughs) Mike told her that if he killed Jessica, then he wanted the death penalty for Stanley. When she called Edna in, she told her that it was a family member, and before she could tell her who, Edna said she already knew it was Stanley. Other family members had come in to say that they'd also been molested by Stanley. It had just been this big secret that they were all keeping, not knowing he was doing it to other people. (gasps) I know. January 22nd, 2015, Stanley Dishon was indicted for Jessica's murder, as well as nine other charges for the sexual abuse of at least three other children in the family that had come forward. Oh, you, Uh I don't even care. I'm going to say, what the... Mm-hmm. The biggest piece of shit. Yep. Agreed. Edna said when he came into court, she couldn't see an ounce of remorse on his face. Ew, I don't even want to look. I don't even want to look his grubby little face up. No, and picture the face. You're already picturing it. That's what he looks like. It's what? Just like a, it's what you're picturing. a mustache yep. with a mullet and <laughs> serial killer glasses. Yeah. <gasps> Serial killer glasses. <laughs> a mullet. Like, what? But, like, almost balding on top. You know, it's bad. It's oh. bad. Detective Lynn continued going through the boxes of evidence that she'd gotten from the defense and found something that just angered her. I'm not sure there's another word besides just angry. She found a letter written in 2002, a letter that the sheriff's department had a copy of from a different informant saying that he'd been in a cell with Stanley Dishon, where he admitted to killing his niece and dumping her in the river bottoms. Oh, my God. The letter had been there for over 10 years while Bucky Brooks was on trial, and no one had done anything about it. This letter's in the box? Yes. In the, yes. She, this was in the box that she got from the defense, but the sheriff's department had a copy of it, too. They all had this letter in 2002. I'm sure the defense was planning on using it, but then there was a mistrial and they never tried him again. Faced with overwhelming evidence, Stanley entered an Alfred plea, which saved the state from going to trial and also saved all the victims of his sexual assaults from having to go through a trial. And it got him a pretty sweet, sweet deal. 
He didn't have to say he'd done it because it's an Alfred plea. He didn't have to plead yeah. guilty. He maintained Still don't his get innocence. Those. Yeah. You maintain your innocence while admitting that the state has enough evidence to convict you. And they gave him 20 years, which means he'll probably serve 15 and be out. Mike says he'll be waiting Ew. on him when he gets out. Oh, you go, Mike. Mm hmm. Wait, is that coming up? I live here. I'm terrified. That was in like 2015. He got 20 years. So, oh, yeah. Stanley Dishon, oh, so you got like ten, 10, a little over 10 more years, like five more years, maybe 30. Yeah, you got, Ew. you got eight more years. Stanley Dishon has come out now to say that he's been innocent this whole time. He says he has an oh. alibi and everything. He was working. There's people that can vouch for him. He said he took the Alfred plea on the advice of his lawyers, but he didn't really understand what he was doing. And it does seem like Stanley might also be working with some sort of cognitive impairment as well. An Alfred plea is hard enough for me to understand, much less someone with, like, an intellectual disability. He said he wanted to go to trial but had no one to help him. His lawyer said that they advised against it not because of the murder charge but because of the nine counts of sexual abuse that he would be facing at trial. Stanley yeah. even contacted the Innocence Project, but they said they were not looking into his case at this time. Uh, I wonder what those rejection – I mean, it probably worded just like that. Those rejection emails, like – yeah, we're not looking into nah. your case at this time. There are a few things that don't add up with this case to me, just a few questions left unanswered that don't really sit right. Whoever did this, if if it was Stanley, which I do believe that he was involved, but it seems like they had to have had help. Just moving the body so that it would be discovered would have taken two people since there were no drag marks. So I – okay, I think that it's possible that it was Stanley. If they'd found that dang shoe, I would be a lot more certain, but they did find the sheet in the barn, which also corroborated that informant statement. But if it was Stanley, I think that maybe he had the help of one of the Brooks brothers. I don't know if it was Bucky or one of the other ones. I think probably one of the others, not Bucky. And that person told Bucky not to ever let anyone search the farm, and that's why he went so hard up against the Dishons. Just all the harassment and stalking and shooting at their 4th of mm -hmm. July party. It just seems like the Brooks family truly lacks empathy. And so yeah. I think that they could still be involved maybe, but – I don't know. We don't I know. think – But I think that Stanley is a piece of crap. 100%. So, yeah. And that's the story of the murder of Jessica Dishon. I am – Do you have your MVP award? Uh, I believe you mean my – peep of the week oh your peep of the week i do i'm torn obviously i want to give it to detective hunt yes that would be the obvious choice and it is it's my choice it's my choice i want to keep up with my theme of it being all women so far i believe <laughs> kim kardashian and who is my other one hannah hardy from the ethan couch hannah hardy ah. <laughs> mm. and detective hunt I do want to give an honorable mention to Mike, who said she ran away with one shoe. Mm -hmm. She ran away with one <laughs> Which shoe. Which I really appreciate. Yep. Yeah. I really appreciated that. Yep. Yes. It's definitely Lynn, Linda. Lynn, Lynn Hunt. Lynn Hunt. Mm -hmm. All right. I really want Edna and Mike to just rekindle. I don't know why, but I just do. I know. All right. Do we have, uh, do we have any shout outs? Oh, okay. I can shout. Shout out. All right. These are my peeps of the week. 
peeps. That's what we should call the shout outs is the peeps of the week. Ah, these are Mogab. These are our peeps of the week. These are the peeps of the week. Peeps of the week. Get ready. Get ready for your shout out. Thank you so much to Katie. Katie coming in hot with the pronunciation guide. Thank you. Hey, <laughs> yes, I really do appreciate that. I like that it's spelled three different ways. I I, I agree. I th- I think it's a typo, that second one. Oh. Yeah. Cotty. Cotty. <laughs> Major shouts, Barbara C. Major shouts, Jennifer Jackson. Jennifer, like half the female names from the 80s, and Jackson, like the Michael, but not related. No relation to Michael. But they're not related. They're not related. And a major thank you to Sherry Hicks. And I can't tell, but it looks like it's this emoji. Is it the shrug? The little shrug emoji? Yes, I think Sherry, so. Sherry shrugs. Sherry shrugs. Thank you so or much. Or it could be raise the roof. Or raise, raise the, the roof. roof. Sherry, raise the Sh- roof. You raised, you raised our roof, Sherry. You've raised our roof. We're raising the roof for you, Sherry. And finally, a big thanks to Sicily. You're the best. Emphasis on the sis. Emphasis if on you- the sis. Ali. Get my drift. Excellent. That was fun. That was fun. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for listening to us. Especially thank you to all of our patrons who've signed up. It's not too late. You can join our Patreon. You're definitely going to want to join it for our upcoming drop of our products for the wish list. And do you know how to join the Patreon, Mogab? Do you know where they can go to join the Patreon? True Crime Creepers? No. Patreon? Patreon.com slash true crime creepers. Also, the link in the show notes, it's there. Also, there's a link in our Instagram bio, it's there too. Also, just download the app and of Patreon and search true crime creepers. There's so many ways to find us on there. So you're welcome to that person that's <laughs> just been welcome. like, I wish I could join their Patreon, but I just haven't been able to figure out how yet. You're welcome. I think that's the case. <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on all the social medias, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Creepers Pod. Join our discussion group. It's awesome. We love it. We're having so much fun in there. And be sure to subscribe. So you'll get our episode as soon as it drops when I'll tell MoGab another wild story. But a reminder. Not next week. Yes, not next week. We're taking it off. We're taking it off. It's Thanksgiving. Enjoy your Thanksgiving, Americans. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Canadians, you already had your Canadians, you had your happy Thanksgiving. And I'm very sorry that we didn't say happy Canadian Thanksgiving. We should have done that. that We're still trying to figure out states and commonwealths. I mean, we don't even know. Kentucky, what is it? (laughs) And the UK. Can someone explain it to me, please? Thank you. (laughs) You're going to get so many. Great Britain, how is it different from England? What What is it? I don't get it. Great Britain, England, and the UK. Those are my questions. I used to go to bars and just speak in a British accent. Oh, boo. Bye, peeps and creeps. (laughs)